0: All right, here we are, uh, lesson number 50 in our, in our series. Uh, lesson number 50, uh, and this is the final summary. We've actually you know, gone through the text itself. We finished the text in our, in our last lesson, uh, or the last lesson that we had, so we're going to do the, a kind of, a, of a, summary, uh, a summary lesson tonight. So we began, uh, we began a January the 5th, of this year. This is when we began this uh, series. A- anybody in here who was actually in that class? Anybody? Oh, 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 oh. I know people kind of joined and left and joined back and left, and I know we've moved it around, so I was just wondering who was in the uh, first class. It's taken a year to do this. I don't think I've done a series that long. Um, let's see, uh, in this course, uh, it's taken a year to complete And I want to give uh, certainly uh, credit uh, relied on um, one book in particular, one resource book, um, of course, the book of Genesis itself. We went over every verse in the 15 chapters, 1533 verses of uh, scripture in the book of Genesis. Uh, Genesis at uh, 50 chapters is not the longest book in the Bible. It is the fourth longest book in the Bible. Psalms, by the way, is the longest book, followed by Isaiah and then Jeremiah, and then comes the book of uh, Genesis. Um, I've also relied uh, heavily on the work of uh, Dr. Henry Morris, and uh, he's put out a lot of books, but one book in particular, The Genesis Record, which is a great commentary on the book of Genesis. You want more information, more material I highly recommend that particular book. And in preparation for this um, uh, course, uh, I've read over 700 pages of uh, resource material, reference material to gather information, so on and so forth, and have written 600 pages of handwritten notes. Just some of the the details. These these, uh, stats will not be on the test, by the way. 600 pages of uh, handwritten notes. A lot of stuff. Anyways, it'd be impossible to review the entire book in one lesson, but each week, if you remember back, starting in the seventh lesson, each week I ended the class with three brief lessons taken from the material that we had. We didn't do that at the very beginning, but starting in lesson seven all the way till tonight, uh, we would uh, try to draw some practical lessons from the material. So tonight I'd like to summarize the entire book by giving the three key lessons from Genesis. Three key lessons from the entire book. So key lesson number one, Genesis is inspired. Genesis is inspired. You know, we spent a lot of weeks studying the first verse. Remember that? We did lots of lessons. People were worried. They were thinking, how long it's going to take five years to get through this book? Because we spent weeks in the first verse and the early chapters in the book because in these was contained the information that explained key things that help us make sense of our world. For example, we learn uh, in Genesis uh, when and how the world was created. And we learn as well by who and why. There's no other book that gives you that information. We also learn the origin of humanity. Human beings are made in the image of God. And there was only one woman and one man. And they were to be together and and, setting the precedent for family. One woman and one man. And notice the thousands and thousands of years have gone by. And as much as society tries to change that, that still is the basic unit that works the best. We also find in Genesis the cause of evil and death. Why is there such evil in the world? Why are there war? Well, because men, men and women, disobey God's laws. And when you disobey, when you break God's laws, the result is evil and death and suffering and so on and so forth. We also find from Genesis the reason for the condition of nature. Why are there floods? Why is it hot and cold and so on and so forth? Well, because of the flood. And all all of the things that took place after the flood the disruption of the ecosystem because of the flood. which the, you know, We said, I'll say it one more time in the 50th lesson, you know, people, are, people invented the term climate change to replace the term global warming, because you know, sometimes it was warming and sometimes it was cooling, so they figured, OK, let's, let's go for a more generic term and they coined the term uh, uh, climate change. But I've said to you, climate change has been happening since after the flood. Climate change started after the flood and it's still changing and it will continue to change until the end of time. As we know, if we go on to Thessalonians, we find out in First Peter and so on and so forth that uh, this universe and this, uh, this creation will be done away with. And then, of course, from Genesis we find God's ultimate purpose for mankind. And what is that? To save man from sin and give him eternal life. So we find a lot of things in the book of Genesis. All of these ideas are outlined and explained in this book and no other book contains this information in an ordered and purposeful way. I mean, you, know, you find out all this information, it's all laid out in a very ordered and pur- purposeful way. Uh, in, in recent years, the attack against the, Bi- the Bible, has always been attacked, but in recent years the attack against the Bible has been focused on the book of Genesis for the simple reason that if you can discredit the foundation, then the entire structure will come tumbling down. That's why the subtitle of this series is Genesis, the foundation book of the Bible. It is the foundation. If you can can tear apart Genesis, everything else crumbles um, on top of it. So that's why there's such an attack against it. Some have offered other theories to explain all of this, you know, all of the origin of humanity and so on. They've offered other theories and have claimed that the Bible is an error because it doesn't agree with their theory. So we have a theory that, that's existed for maybe 150 years, let's say, you know, Darwin's theory, you know, 100 years or so. And because the Bible doesn't agree with that, we have to reject the thousands of years of the Bible and the standard that it has st- stated in order to make room for this new theory. But if if I'm, I'm not a scientist, obviously, but it seems to me if you study history, scientific theories, don't they come and go? Didn't the brightest minds in the world at one time think the world was flat? You know what I'm saying? So uh, I'm not ready to put all my eggs in the scientific basket. Now in response to these, unfortunately, many Christians have begun to change their view of Genesis in order to accommodate modern theories. And what some people have done is, for example, uh, they say that Genesis is partially inspired. Everything except the creation story is inspired you know, in order to make room for evolution and other ideas. They say, OK, well, let's knock out the first couple of chapters. That's just a fable. But the rest of it's inspired. Really? You know, what does Second Timothy 3.16 say? Every scripture, every scripture is God breathed. Every one, Not just you know, a couple of chapters. It's, you take it all or you, you, leave, it, you leave it all. Right? Uh, some say, well, it doesn't really mean what it says. It's only one of the many fables about the creation of the world, you know, the literary view, that it's just literature. You, know, you, you can't you know, take it as, as history. Now people do this because they can't answer some of the questions and problems brought forth by the doubters and the disbelievers. You know, certain, certain ideas about the fossil records, certain things about the, you know, how old things are. We might not have a, a ready answer to that, but just because we don't have a ready answer to that doesn't mean we have to reject the Bible. Who says we understand every single thing in the scriptures? You know, I, I don't. I don't think you do. and No one makes that particular uh, claim. But we have to understand that there have been doubters and complex questions about the Bible throughout history. And the interesting thing to note is that when, when, when these things are resolved, these hard questions, these doubts, when these things finally get resolved, the answer always confirms that the Bible was correct and not whatever popular theory of the day attacking the Bible, Every time you look back over a big thing, it's always the Bible that comes out on top. Otherwise, it would have been you know, discredited long ago. Um, and a few years ago, Time Magazine reported that scientists studying the DNA of ancient human fossils discovered, oh my, they discovered that man originated from one small and concentrated group in one region, Fairly recently, they said a few hundred thousand years ago, not a million years ago. This is what they discovered, and of course, this contradicted uh, uh, what evolutionists claimed—that human beings evolved spontaneously in various geographic areas all over the world over a period of millions of years. Now, the, the, the Time magazine, trust me, is not a—they're not Bible scholars and Bible defenders—but they couldn't deny what the scientists had said. So what was interesting is that the discovery was much more in line with what Genesis taught than what Darwin taught. And whoops, yeah, whoops, they didn't like that. Of course, that idea kind of got buried. We, don't, we never mention that particular study very much these days. So you know, if we live to be a thousand years old, there will be other theories and other attacks to undermine the foundation of God's word. We shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be afraid. We shouldn't be disappointed. It's been like that since the beginning. And we shouldn't be surprised or afraid or discouraged either. Don't be discouraged because the scripture uh, is being attacked. You know, Marty said something really interesting the other day. We were just kind of visiting about things, you know, talking about Bible subjects, as you know, two preachers uh, do, and he said, you know what's really interesting? He said, all the movies that they make based on books, you know, like Lord of the Rings and, and Harry Potter. You ever notice that the, 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 the filmmakers are very, very careful to, uh, 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 to make the movie Exactly as the book was written, because people will, you know, they'll go crazy if you if you take a Harry Potter book and you do, you you change a character, you change some of the plot. They don't like that. They want the book to be represented meticulously. Oh, the Star Wars people, they go nuts if you, you know, Luke Skywalker and all that kind of stuff. You know, they they want they want the books to be faithfully reproduced and the old movies to be faithful. There's only one book that, whenever they make a movie about it. They just throw all the storyline out the window, and that's the Bible. And I mentioned one. Maybe I may be dating this video here, but you know, we, we saw you know, the Noah, the latest Noah movie. I mean, that was crazy. Where, where did they get that story? They certainly didn't get it from the Bible. And now the newest movie, Exodus, the same thing. Where did they get that? Where did they get that storyline? So I'm just saying, it's nothing new. You know, uh, unbelievers and scoffers don't know what to do with the Bible when they have to handle it. Nothing new. It'll always always be there. Always be there. Uh, Like I said, if we live a thousand years, we're going to see a pattern that has existed for thousands of years. Disbelievers and doubters, they come and go, but Genesis remains to, uh, to teach us the true nature of our world and our society and our God. And there's one passage that is, I think, very, very powerful to help us hold on to this idea, and it's out of Isaiah. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And I think if we take that to heart, memorize that scripture, let that be the passage that comforts us when we are exposed to the attacks against God's word that we see. And sometimes made by brilliant men and and women, a lot smarter than we are, a lot better at arguing their case than we are at arguing ours, because we're not professional debaters and so on and so forth. You know what I'm saying? We don't have to use our own wisdom to defend God's word. As a matter of fact, we don't have to defend God's word. He's never asked us to defend His word. He's only asked us to proclaim His word. His word is powerful enough to stand on its, on its own. Yeah, our problem is we just don't, you know, we don't proclaim it enough. All right. So key lesson number one uh, from Genesis, certainly. God's word, uh, you know, the Bible, Genesis, is an inspired work. Key lesson number two, God is gracious. I mean, that just comes out. They say that the Old Testament reveals the Father, the Gospels reveal the Son, and the book of Acts and the epistles reveal the Holy Spirit. You see the Father working in the Old Testament. You see plainly the Son, the image and the work and the words of the Son in the Gospels, and then you see the Holy Spirit at work through the rest of the scriptures. And this is This is fairly true because in the book of Genesis we see the promise of the Son, the promise of it, in a a kind of an indirect way. And we see also references to the Holy Spirit, not as strongly as we see in the epistles, for example, or in the book of Acts, right? Uh, But chapter after chapter, what we do see in the Old Testament, especially in Genesis, is the Father, Father God, God the Father, creating, as well as dealing with man in good and in bad times. The one thing that shines through all of these many chapters is that God, God the Father, is a gracious being. And gracious, what I mean by gracious, uh, is first of all generous. We see His generosity in the world that He makes. Think about it. Think about it. He didn't make some blank, bland, uncomfortable place. Instead, He creates a mind-boggling assortment of colors and types and shapes and sounds that we could not experience all of it if we lived a thousand years. We could not exhaust the the number of flowers and trees, cloud formations, animals, fish. We We couldn't see it all. I'm always amazed, I'm always amazed with the idea that there are things that a God has created that human beings haven't seen in thousands of years, and then all of a sudden they discover at the bottom of the sea, you know what I mean? These creatures you know, who've been there all this time, and yet no one has seen them. And so, you know, when, when philosophers say, Why is that? How does that make sense? It only makes sense when we understand that the creation is there to give honor and glory to God, not to man. Just amazing thing. uh, There's more here on the earth than we need. There's more food than we can eat. There's more colors. Artists go crazy because they just can't draw it all. (laughs) There's just so much. Gracious also means thoughtful. I'm not just giving you the dictionary. I'm saying we see God's graciousness in Genesis through the generosity that He demonstrates. Also thoughtfulness. What He gives and creates is done with the thought of every living creature in mind. Think about it. Our most mundane acts and our most simple needs are always carefully provided for every single little thing. You know, the fact that we blink to moist to keep our eyes moist and so on and so forth. The eyelashes are there to protect, you know, catch dust. You know, every tiny little thing created that we might function easily, comfortably, joyfully. And then I see also through His graciousness, mercy. If anything, Genesis teaches us that God, the Father, is loving and kind and merciful. He devises a plan to save the man who rejects Him. <laughs> I mean, man rejects Him and yet He divides a plan to, to save Him. Uh, he, devises a plan, he devises a plan to save the man who destroys his own life and then causes the ruin of the beautiful creation that God had freely given him. Can you imagine? In every story from Adam to Noah to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph down the line, we see the very very same scenario. A majestic, mighty, merciful God dealing kindly and patiently with a weak and sinful and stubborn people. Stiff-necked, stubborn, hard-hearted people. I mean, I couldn't be God because I would have wiped them out long ago. You know what I'm saying? He never gives up. The biggest lie that Satan says to us is he convinces us that God has given up on us. <laughs> that is such a lie, and it works. I, I believe that people, you know, just who are depressed and sad and so on and so forth, you know, uh, especially people of faith who commit suicide, I think they they buy into that lie that God has just given up on them, doesn't care about them anymore. He never gives up. He never loses patience. He always pursues his ultimate goal of bringing people out of this fallen world into the heavenly place where He lives. I mean, it's so ridiculous when you think about it. We have Almighty God using all of His resources to bring us to heaven. And you'd think, well, this is a no-brainer. How could He fail? There's only one thing, only one thing that will stop that from happening. And we know what that is, right? Us. Us. We stop it. It's, It's just, it's crazy. You know, many have an image of God as some kind of tyrant or judge or demanding angry father, but they didn't get this image from the book of Genesis. Most people have their idea of who God is from their earthly fathers. That's where the primal image of God the Father is created. In people's subconscious. All those signals, whether the dad is there or not there, the father is the one who imprints the child as to who God is. Now that doesn't mean that the child has to stay with that image. You know what I'm saying? I mean, we, we grow up, we learn the Bible, you know, whatever was accurate about our dad somewhat being like God, we can embellish that, we can you know, bring that to a much truer conclusion. But I'm, I'm, you know, I'm impressed on men uh, who are fathers who are still raising children, you know, how important it is. You know, your children, our children, will get their idea of who God is, first and foremost from us. And then hopefully we'll train them in the scripture so that they will be able to kind of get, a, a, of course, a, a much more accurate uh, a picture of that. So uh, from the calm and inquiring voice confronting Adam and Eve, it doesn't say God screamed out, "What have you done, you? What a use, useless boy! Look at everything I gave you. What's the matter with you?" you know that's not. He says, "So what are you doing?" <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> did you eat from the tree? I told you. To? Well, she told me to do it, and I went and did it. Oh no, well, the serpent, you know. But it's not God the Father who's saying, you people, uh, you know, I can't leave you alone a minute. Look what you did. You know, that, that's not. It's that gentle voice. And then the same presence encouraging Jacob to go into Egypt and join his son. Don't be afraid, he says, go. You go to Egypt. Go see your son. I'll bring you back. I'll fulfill the promise. Don't worry. How many times does Jesus say, don't worry, or don't be afraid? How many times does He say that to people? So you know, when in your mind you're hearing God say to you, what's the matter with you? What kind of dope are you? you know what? I'm, I'm fed up with you. you know? Trust me, that is not the Father speaking to you. That's you speaking to you, maybe Satan speaking to you, but that's not not the father. So all that we see in Genesis reveals an unbroken image of God, our father, who cares for his sons and his daughters and he plans for their ultimate happiness, just like earthly fathers do. Later on, when the Israelites become a nation and continually rebel directly against God, and we see Him repeatedly discipline them, this image of of graciousness is less evident. But here in Genesis, as mankind is in its infancy, we see God, the gracious and tender Father, leading His children in their first steps that will ultimately lead them to spiritual maturity. So yeah, God is gracious. That's I learned that from Genesis. And then key lesson uh, number three. Um, uh, I've heard people say, wow, there's no doctrine in Genesis. Wow, yeah, no, yeah, there is doctrine, lots of doctrine in Genesis. Salvation is by faith. Now, don't get me wrong, it's not that we're limited to three lessons from Genesis, right? But I, I'm trying to pick the, the big one, the meta lessons from Genesis salvation in by faith you know some people actually think that the idea of salvation being by faith is an idea that's introduced by the new testament they're actually under the impression of that they wrongly conclude that in the old testament people were saved by the law now the error here is that the jews especially the pharisees began to think that they could be right with god by meticulously keeping the law, especially the ceremonial law of sacrifice and food and tithing, they began to think, you know, if I can just keep the rules about my religion, how to practice my worship, and if I can keep those rules, that'll make me right with God. But this was never so, ever. It was never so. In Genesis, God establishes the way and the only way that a person could be saved. In other words, being right with God and avoiding condemnation because of sin. There has only always ever been one way to be saved. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 5 and 6, let's just read this. It says, this is God talking to Abraham. And He took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And He said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Where do you see ceremonial law here? Where do you see rule keeping here? Do you see that anywhere? I don't don't see it. The only way from the very beginning to be right with God is to believe Him and to believe in Him. There's a difference, right? You believe in Him, that means You believe in His existence. That's good. And then you believe Him means you believe what He says to you is true. Now, if someone believes Him, this faith will motivate that person to obedience and trust and adoration and worship and so on and so forth. God promised that He would send someone to pay the price for sin and the entire Bible is the story of how Jesus eventually came and did this. That's what. If somebody says, so what's the Bible about in one sentence? The Bible is about how God sent Jesus to save mankind from eternal death, period. That's what the Bible is about. In Genesis, God required that a person believe Him in order to be acceptable. In the New Testament, God requires that people believe in His Son, Jesus Christ, in order to become acceptable and therefore saved from condemnation. Why are we saved? Because we're acceptable. That's why I'm saved. I'm I'm saved because God has made me acceptable to Himself. That's what saves me. Not, Not because I do anything. It's how He considers me. So in Genesis, God required obedience as a way of acting out faith. And this included circumcision and following God's lead as to worship and conduct and service and so on and so forth. But all those things, the the sheep offered and the the incense and the fasting and the tithing, all that stuff were ways to demonstrate faith. And, and, And how that became polluted is that people began to think, If I perfectly do the things that demonstrate my faith, in the doing of those things, that's what saves me. And they forgot, no, the working out of your worship and so on and so forth, that's simply a demonstration of a faith that you have. Period. Otherwise, we'd be saved by perfect worship practices. You understand what I'm saying? We call it the form. Some people think you're saved by forms. Uh, we get all of the body dunked under water when we are baptized, you know, making sure, whoa, whoa, was there a hair sticking up? Oh, I think I saw his finger come out of the water. Oh no, well, we've got to rebaptize that person you know, because we didn't do the form correctly. That's why some, I was in a church once where somebody, I don't know, they, were at, they weren't paying attention and they served the uh, fruit of the vine first. They prayed and somehow they grabbed the wrong tray and everybody followed suit and they served the, the fruit of the vine first, and then, and the guy realized what he did, he said, oh well let 's have a prayer, and then he served the bread. And I mean, there was such consternation among many people there were you no, know, oh, this happened in Canada. Well, it, maybe it happened here, but oh, it happened here too. There was such consternation because people thought we 've sinned, you know, why? Because they, they didn't do the form correctly. Not the idea that they were coming to worship God. and you know, it was, a, it was a, a natural mistake. Mistakes happen. Well what do you think grace is about? You know, grace covers you, 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 uh, uh, you know, you, I don't know, you did bad things, you, know, you robbed, you stole, you did bad things, you know, and then uh, you may have even killed somebody, you know what I'm saying? And if you're baptized for the remission of sins, your your sins are forgiven you. you But if you make a mistake and serve the juice before the bread, this here, this is like the unforgivable sin. If God's grace covers your immoral acts, it certainly covers also the mistakes that you make, I mean in good conscience, the mistakes that you make when you're trying to worship God. Now I'm not saying that how we worship And how we baptize are not important. They are important because God gives us, of course, He gives us how to do things. But like everything else, sometimes we make mistakes or we neglect things. We need to remember that the radioactive ingredient that draws us and makes us acceptable to God is the fact that we believe Him and we believe in Him. And the way that we express that faith, okay, that, that's how we express that faith. Yes, I'm baptized. Yes, I sing when I worship. I don't use instruments. Yes, I, I take the communion on the Lord's Day. And yes, uh, even moral laws. Yes, I'm a faithful to only one wife or one husband. You know what I'm saying? Yes, I do those things. But I'm doing those things not to save myself. I'm doing those things to, sell, to say to God, I still believe. I do believe. I want to please You, Lord. Help me to know more perfectly how to do that. Okay, So I tell people here in the church that we meticulously follow certain ways on how we conduct public worship and organize the church. They say, oh, you're legalists. We're not legalists. We're respectful. We're respectful. We're trying to respect what God has told us to do by carefully searching the scriptures as to how to do these things in order to please Him. That's not legalism. That's prudence. That's prudence, because after all, we're worshiping and serving Almighty God, who has the power of life and death over us. I mean, you know, we're respectful if a cop stops us you know, to give us a ticket because we're going too slow in Ron's case. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and, uh, right. And we're, we're, we're re- very respectful with the cop. Yes sir, no sir. And then we, we, we forget to be respectful when we're worshiping God. So, anyways, I, I, got, I got away from the lesson and got into preaching here, but you know, <laughs> that's okay. So, in the New Testament, as I say, God still requires obedience, but this time in the form of, a, of baptism and following God's lead as to worship and conduct and service. So, Genesis is the beginning. And from the very beginning God has required man to believe what he has said and trust him regardless of the circumstances. That was what was happening in Genesis with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. Just trust me, he said. Well, you know what? That same God the Father is saying to Steve and Bob and me and Paul and everybody, he's, he's still saying the same message. Just trust me. Trust me, you believed in me at the beginning. Trust me, I I, I won't let you down. So Genesis is the beginning of the story of how man pleases God, comes to know God, is saved by God, and all through the act of believing and taking Him at His word. Abraham left home and took God at His word. Well, maybe we don't have to leave and go to a foreign land, but there are a lot of things we need to do and we've just taken Him at His word. That has never, never changed. So as I say, this is our final lesson in a very long and in-depth course about the book of beginnings. I I doubt if there is a course that exists out there. I may be wrong, but I don't know if there's a course that exists out there that has 50 video lessons of this particular book, and I'm glad that we've done it. You've done it with me. We've done it together, and we're able now to put this out there to serve not only our brethren, but also to serve anyone that wants to know more about this book. So Genesis is the book of beginnings, a book that comes from God, a book that reveals a gracious God, and a book that shows us that faith is what ultimately saves us. So Genesis, the foundation book of the Bible, prepares us to understand every other book. I think we should end our course with a prayer. I remember at the beginning, I think we started one with a prayer, so I think we should end it with a prayer. So if you'll join me and if those who are watching online and later on, uh, let's, uh, let's go to the Father in prayer and give thanks, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for Your kindness and goodness towards us all the days of our life. We're especially thankful that You have revealed Yourself through Jesus Christ and that you have given us your word, Lord, to understand you, to come to know you, and to come to know how we are saved through you and through Christ. Father, we're grateful for those who have written and preserved uh, your word, especially the book of Genesis, which we have studied these many weeks. We pray that our study and our discussion and and the efforts that we've made to come to a greater understanding of, of this particular book is pleasing in your sight, And we ask that you help us put into practice the lessons that we have learned, Father, and to keep near to our hearts the things that that are important concerning uh, your revelation in this book. Thank you for this class. Thank you for all those who are watching and who will watch in the future. Bless them, Father, and bless us now. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.